Welcome, friends, to yet another exciting, penetrating episode of the New Discourses podcast. I'm James Lindsay, and I'm going to talk to you about cynical theories. This is a book that I wrote with Helen Pluckrose. I'm not going to talk to you, actually, about the book itself. I'm going to talk to you about criticizing the book. I'm going to criticize my own work, because I keep seeing criticisms of it come up, and frankly... Um, contrary to what the people criticizing my work tend to think, uh, they are not the best experts in terms of what might be a shortcoming or what might be, uh, wrong or whatever with cynical theories, because I wrote the book, I'm better at it than they are. And I really do mean that I am relentlessly critical of my own work typically, and I have put more thought probably than anybody else into what I could have done better. And so I'm going to give the criticism of cynical theories that my critics wish they could so that theirs look pathetic by comparison. And so they kind of come up in a variety of uh, genres, but primarily they take the form that we don't really understand the philosophers that we talk about, in particular that we don't understand the postmodernists. So I'm going to talk about some postmodernism, not really about postmodernism. I'm going to talk about how we engage the material of the postmodernists to write cynical theories. I'm going to put that out there, make that clear, and it will um, not necessarily refute what these people are arguing, but rather it's going to diffuse or defang their argument. That's the goal, is I'm going to take the fangs off of that argument. I also want to give kind of a short, I want to keep this one relatively short. Some of my my New Discourses podcasts recently, recently have been running long, I want to keep this one a little bit shorter if I can, but I want to give kind of an overview genealogy of wokeness. And that's very difficult to do because it actually combines a lot of lines of thought. This won't be complete, but those are the kinds of goals that I'm going to have. So let's talk about how we wrote cynical theories. We have this bizarre belief, and maybe we're wrong for having it, but I don't think we are. Uh, we could talk about a lot of different philosophers. We could talk about Foucault is very particular within the Michel Foucault, the postmodern philosopher. It's very particular when we were writing cynical theories. One of the kind of um, back of the envelope ideas that we kept was all roads lead back to Foucault within uh, the the postmodern aspects of critical social justice. So you can have this kind of a thing where you have a philosopher. He's got this very broad uh, catalog of work with lots of ideas spanning many decades. Foucault's first papers started appearing, or essays and, and books started appearing in the uh, early 1960s, maybe even the 19, late 1950s. I'd have to check the earliest ones. And he continued to write right up to his death in the 1980s. So we have this, you know, evolving huge body of work. It's got bajillions of citations and commentaries and interpretations out there. And it would be difficult to summarize Foucault's work specifically, but it would also be useless. I don't care about the totality of Foucault's work. And many of the philosophers who criticize aspects of how we portrayed Foucault, for example, in Cynical Theories, are very concerned with the totality of Foucault's work. Now, this is also very uh, appropriate for when I finally get around. I still am intending to. I just haven't done the homework properly, so I'm not doing it yet to talk about Hegel's work. Hegel is a very complicated and difficult philosopher. Some people say that he literally is unreadable, some, and therefore there's you know bajillions of interpretations of his work that all are, are all over the place. Other people say it's that he's very subtle and very difficult to understand, maybe the hardest to understand. 
Again, I don't care about the totality of his work. Here's what I care about, and here's what Helen and I cared about when we wrote Cynical Theories. We care about how those ideas that originated with those thinkers, or at least that are associated with those thinkers' names now, how those ideas are used today by activists who are creating a problem. Okay, so that's a very narrow use of, say, Foucauldian thought or Hegelian thought or Marxian thought or whoever the whoever the hell we're talking about, Marcusean thought, if we wanted to look at Marcusa. Obviously, anybody who writes this much and who is as intelligent as some of these people were are going to have some good ideas and some bad ideas, and the totality of their work is worth considering in and of itself, mostly as an academic exercise. Frankly, mostly as an academic exercise. That's almost completely freaking irrelevant, however. It is almost completely irrelevant to how activists are using certain among their ideas to cause real problems in the world today. Okay, so what we did to write cynical theories was we said, how are ideas that originated with people like Foucault and Derrida, uh, Baudrillard, the other postmodern philosophers, Lyotard, etc., how are these ideas being used by activists today, specifically woke activists, because that's what we were interested in uh, talking about and exposing. We're not talking about, you know, some weird conservative thinker who's decided to use Foucault as a basis. No, we don't care. We're talking about the woke movement. So we said, how are woke people today, woke scholars today and activists today using ideas that came from Foucault? So we start here in the present. We go back in time, link through a chains of either citations or of, uh, you know, seeing the concept run through time or translators or whatever back to Foucault, look at the ideas that were relevant, which is not going to be the totality of his work, and then draw the line back forward to today. This idea originated with Foucault. This was something that was very important to his thought. It's not the totality of his thought. Later activists picked this up. They did X, Y, and Z with it. And the woke activists today have transmogrified that into this terrible thing. But the root is still Foucault, or the root is still Marcuse, or the root is still Hegel, or the root is still Marx. Okay, and for cynical theories, we actually picked the postmodern theorists to tell one aspect of a much more complicated story. Why one aspect instead of the whole story? Because the book's already 80,000 words long. Already 80,000 words. And that's long. It was over the given word limit. It's enough. It's complicated and dense and difficult enough without adding in more moving parts. So now, if I wanted to, I could write a book about a genealogy of the woke ideology, for example. I could tell you where the woke ideology has come from, and the idea of postmodernism can be condensed into a chapter or two, um, which would be about fitting, because it can lean on cynical theories to tell that particular story in more detail. And so just kind of as a point I want to raise right away, these kind of philosophers who miss this point, that the totality of Hegel's thought, or Marxist thought, or... Um, uh, Foucault's thought, or Derrida's thought, or Marcuse's thought, or any of these philosophers' thoughts. The totality is irrelevant. And here's, here's something that I, I really just want to burn them on this, because it's super important to realize. If this problem could have been solved, the woke problem, it's a problem. It is a real threat to civilization right now, and that's not an exaggeration. If the woke problem could have been solved by these fuckhead philosophers who think that learning the entire body of work of Foucault is relevant, and to summarize his thought in that way is relevant, they would have stopped the monster already, but they didn't. 
The people who are allegedly these experts criticizing our allegedly amateur understanding, which I say is a particular form of understanding rather than an amateur understanding, do not have the necessary tools to solve the problem because they're looking at the problem in the wrong way. They're sitting here talking, you know, basically mostly smelling their own farts about how great Foucault was or complex Foucault was. Oh, but he had some bad ideas and those have had some bad results. But they did nothing. The so-called, the Foucault experts, the Hegel experts, the Marcuse experts, critical theorists who got, you know, a little bit disaffected, none of them, none of them, not a single damn one of them, has put up any significant roadblock. The only people who ever threw up roadblocks against this stuff were people who were outside of it, saw it, realized how horrific it is, wrote criticisms, and then summarily got told they were too amateur to write criticisms. So pardon me if I tell these philosophers who think they know so much better that they failed to put up so they can shut up. They didn't do it. They failed us. They failed us so friggin' significantly. We might lose our goddamn civilization because they couldn't get their heads out of their asses about how fucking wonderful the whole totality of thought of these deep thinkers was. Okay, so pardon me when I don't care about their friggin' criticisms in those regards. Now, that said, I told you our methodology. We, we, we look at the ideas as they are being used today. If we were talking about Hegel, and in fact, when I do the Hegel podcast, I'll probably do this. I will probably start reading a paragraph out of Critical Race Theory and Introduction where it directly references Hegelian thought and then show you where that comes from in Hegel. So we started with how activists who are screwing up the world today actually use these ideas, and then we trace them back to the roots. The only thing is, rather than telling the story that way, we told the story front to back. In other words, starting with the postmodernists in the 1960s, we said, oh, here are some thoughts from postmodernism. Here are some thoughts that characterize some of what Foucault thought, some of what Derrida thought, some of what Lyotard thought, some of what Baudrillard thought, some of what Frederick Jameson thought, some of what uh, Deleuze and Guattari thought, some of what Richard Rorty thought. We had to clip other people out. Oh, and then look how these ideas were picked up by people like Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak and Homi Baba, undeniably picked up by these people, picked up by Patricia Collins and critical rate. Those are post-colonial theorists. Picked up by Patricia Collins, Kimberly Crenshaw, Angela Harris, Bell Hooks, so on, and critical race theory and black feminism. Look how they were picked up by uh, Judith Butler and Gail Rubin and Eve Sedgwick and so on, Halberstam, uh, Judith or Jack, depending on which time it is, because trans. Um, look how they were picked up and used and or misused. And then look how that translated to people like Robin D'Angelo. Look how that translated to people like Ibram Kendi. Look how that translated to people like Barbara Applebaum and Allison Bailey, who are writing today with these same ideas. Okay, so that's one thing that we did. And given that that's how we did it, there you have no reason to expect whatsoever. No reason to expect whatsoever that we would represent the totality of Michel Foucault's thought. I can be very generous, in fact, too generous to Michel Foucault's thought. I've said repeatedly, in fact, too generously that, that Michel Foucault's analysis of biopower and biopolitics is probably the single best analysis, if you can understand what he's actually talking about correctly, the single best analysis that explains what in the world is going on with COVID policy, what in the world is going on with sustainability policy, what in the world is going on with these weird technocratic experts running things like the Democratic Party, the World Economic Forum, the International Monetary Fund, all these kind of weird high power institutions that are now 
pushing all this expertise upon us in a very technocratic way. And I would say that, that Foucault's analysis of power under the names biopower and biopolitics is probably one of the best, or at least most insightful, critiques of technocracy that relies on so-called scientism that you could possibly have. But, but Foucault didn't do it right. Foucault called it science. He didn't call it technocracy. He said that science is the problem. But science isn't the problem. Science is the answer to the problem. Actual science. Actual science where we actually defer to evidence. But Foucault believed that this science, science itself, where we defer to evidence, oh, well, that means this is a political process that, they, that we use to determine who knows the methodologies and who gets to collect the evidence and who gets to uh, interpret the evidence and who gets to be authenticated as uh, somebody who is going to say which methods count and which methods don't. So it's still a political process. It's still power dynamics. Which the activists, which Foucault, you know, maybe talking in the abstract, maybe he had a point. I think he had a very small point that got blown up into a very big point, especially by stupid activists like who are mostly feminists who picked it up in English departments um, and then brought that to people who were much more radical activists, uh, who are mostly neo-Marxists, who were like, aha, now we have a way to break scientific hegemony, which is something that they wanted to do anyway. Now we have a way to tear down these ideas. So then it goes from Foucault, whatever you want to say about Foucault, I don't care because those ideas are there. And then we had them picked up by activists who, whether they interpreted them correctly in some cases or misinterpreted them, doesn't matter. This is where Helen and I call it the turn to applied postmodernism. Uh, these activists took this up and then they were like, Oh, you know, knowledge is all contingent. It's all a political process. In fact, it's used to exclude racial minorities. It's used to exclude, this was straight out of Foucault's History of Sexuality, it's used to exclude uh, gay perspectives, homosexual, queer in particular perspectives, because gay didn't really last very long against postmodernism because it turns out to be real, and real things don't last well uh, in postmodern-influenced activism. So it had to go into queer, which is just like not as real. It's much more abstract. It's something that is much more fluid and malleable and can be screwed around with mostly linguistically, um, regardless of the underlying biology or reality. And so it gets picked up by these people. Judith Butler cites Foucault repeatedly, for example, in Gender Trouble, her most famous book in, in 1990. Uh, Patricia Collins cites Foucault. Bell Hook cites Foucault. You hear Foucault being mentioned all through these people until all of a sudden that wave of activism is done, and then you see authors writing things. Was this Angela Williams? I don't remember who wrote this, so I apologize for not remembering who wrote this. We cited it in Cynical Theories, where they say, oh, well, it wouldn't be intersectional anymore to cite Foucault, who was a white man, now that black women have rewritten this. So then Foucault got written out of his own theories, and his theories barely recognize, are barely recognizable. This is you know, somewhat true with Foucault. When you look at how Judith Butler, just as an aside, picked up Jacques Derrida's post-structuralism, she just basically made stuff up. It doesn't even resemble the original. There are, are staggeringly good critiques from people like Jeffrey Bennington, who is a British kind of disciple of Derrida, who just absolutely scathingly ripped Judith Butler's failure to understand post-structuralism. But it doesn't matter. Because Judith Butler's ideas are the ones that are actually used, and she attributes them to Derrida. 
Okay, when we look in postcolonial theory, we have this kind of angry Edward Said. We have this angry Gayatri Spivak, and both of them cite Foucault on like every second page until Said got pissed off and said he was. He originally said he was combining Franz Fanon and the postcolonialist with Michel Foucault. Then he decided he didn't like Foucault's analysis quite as much as he liked Fanon, so he moved more into Fanon and less into Foucault. So, so what? He still cites Foucault. He still misuses or uses whichever one it happens to be at any given time, his ideas. Same thing with Spivak. Spivak comes up with this idea of epistemic oppression that certain uh, colonized, but thus later identity, thus later racial groups and other identity groups are excluded from knowledge and they're oppressed by being excluded from knowledge. And she cites Foucault on every page. But then when you turn around and you see more modern thinkers like Christy Dodson who want to talk about epistemic oppression and epistemic violence, they cite Spivak and never mention Foucault. This happens again and again. So we're talking with Christy Dodson papers. And Christy Dodson is a brilliant thinker. She's just got really bad first principles. Um, you see that she's writing in 2010, 2012, 2014 for these kinds of papers, 2011, something like that. I'd have to look up the exact citations. 2014 is her most famous paper, but I think 2012 is the one about epistemic oppression. So now you have whatever Foucault's ideas were, it doesn't matter because the activists in 2020, 2021, are paying attention to what Christy Dotson did with those ideas after they passed through Gayatri Spivak, uh, Spivak would have passed those ideas along in 1984 or thereabouts, 1988, something like that. And then Dotson picks them up in 2012 or thereabouts, turns them into something new. And now what it boils down to is what Foucault's legacy has been within the activist communities that are making a difference is that different races represent different cultures, different identity groups represent different cultures, and different cultures have different knowledges, and those knowledges are endemic to those cultures, and they cannot be understood or criticized from outside of those cultures. So all of a sudden, my lived experience gets to set the tone. Critical race theory gets to lean into its racial identities. Critical uh, identity studies or identity theories get to lean into their various identities. Intersectionality gets to use its various intersections identity theories and each one of those things constitutes a unique knowledge that cannot be challenged from outside and that has been unfairly oppressed by systems of power that following Foucault somebody set up somebody got to set up who gets to choose what counts as knowledge and not well whatever that dominant culture was well he's talking about you know maybe the leaders of universities he's talking about maybe you know, even kings or, you know, the high chancellors of society or whatever he's talking about, that doesn't matter. Because in critical race theory, it's white supremacists set it up. People who were white, people who were therefore automatically benefiting from white racism, uh, anti-blackness, and therefore baked uh, anti-black racism and white supremacy into everything they did. And therefore, any challenge to critical race theory is a uh, outsider who has all this privilege and has been excluding other ways of knowing. It's just an attempt to continue to exclude other ways of knowing. That idea tracks directly back to Foucault. Whether the people who think that Foucault has the answer to this problem today uh, are right or not, that idea tracks back to Foucault undeniably. And it doesn't matter that it got brought through a scholarly game of telephone of activist angry resentment-laden telephone to the point where it no longer resembles Foucault's actual idea and that Foucault would actually tear that idea apart were he alive instead of having died in 1984. And to think, though, that we can now resurrect Foucault and say, oh, well, if you just understood Foucault in its entirety. No, 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 no. Sorry, 
that doesn't work that way. The ideology of today, the activists of today have already gobbled up Foucault. You can't go back to Foucault to undo them. If you talk about Foucault now, you empower the bullshit that they're pushing now. If you say Foucault didn't think that, they say we already said that. We already said that Foucault wanted to take apart all systems of power. He wanted to question all systems of power. He wanted to take apart all of the sites of systems of power, which is ultimately a idea that can only exist within a white supremacy position. He had to be privileged, racially privileged, to think that we could deconstruct race, that we could take apart race. He must have been racially privileged. They've already accounted for it, and they no longer cite him. You can't bring Foucault back against something that is derived from, that has already consumed, or if we were going to talk about Hegel, that has already done the dialectical process to Foucault and incorporated it. You can't do it. So Foucault's dead. You can't pull up Derrida, if Derrida can even be used against these people. Bennington writes about how these people garbled Derrida. Does that slow them down one inch? No, of course not. It's well known how Judith Butler completely garbled post-structuralism. Has that slowed her down one bit? No doesn't matter. Judith Butler writes all through all of her stuff, well, if we actually defined post-structuralism or postmodernism, then it wouldn't be what it is. So I'm not that. She just dodges the charge. And the problem is, is that the activists are using those ideas in a way that prevents you from being able to resurrect those ideas and use them against them. If you don't understand that, you can't fight them. So these people want to resurrect Foucault and say, oh, Foucault would be against this. Great. So what? So what? Marx would be against this because it's so entwined with capitalism. So what does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with freaking anything? Nothing at all. You cannot actually resurrect these ideas. You cannot resurrect these thinkers and then appeal to them to take on something that has already consumed them, has devoured them, has remade them in its own image. It cannot be done. It, you have no power here. So this is a this is a, a failure of of an approach. Okay, so just to kind of summarize that, this this leads me back to being able to now say, okay, so I'm going to criticize. I said I was going to criticize cynical theories. So I was going to give the criticism. So one of the criticisms was already leveled that it's too narrow. It only focuses on this postmodern element of the story. So I'm going to correct for that a little bit by telling more of the story today. Simultaneously, uses these very narrow interpretations of the philosophers. But now you know why, because it would make no sense to try to do something different. It would do no good. It would achieve nothing. To talk about the ideas of Foucault that disagree with the ideas of the woke is only going to empower Foucault and remind the woke of saying, yeah, we already incorporated that. Yeah, we already dealt with that 30 years ago. We already took it to the next level. We already recognized Foucault's privilege. We already got Foucault out of the way. So it's not actually going to work. Is it true that Foucault has a very excellent set of ideas that we could turn to for challenging technocracy and scientism, say by the Democratic Party right now, or by these weirdo globalists, or even by the woke themselves, who are claiming that we must listen to science, believe science, listen to experts, you know? Yeah, of course. And can we learn from that? Yeah, we should. Would it be any good to say, oh, Foucault is against this, and if we understand Foucault properly, then you see that you know, Lindsay and Pluckrose misrepresented Foucault in important ways. No, you've missed the entire point. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what time it is. Sit down and shut up. This is why you couldn't stop this problem before it got here. So there's the criticism of critical or of cynical theories that we didn't we didn't cherry pick Foucault. Don't get me wrong. That's not what we didn't. What we did was we looked at how activists are using Foucault's ideas today or Derrida's ideas today, etc., and we traced them backwards through the chain of citations. 
and then told the story back forward and said, these ideas out of Foucault, despite being mutated, which we literally use that word mutated in the book, despite being mutated, survive today in this form in woke activism. And I've just given a good example, so I don't have to belabor the point. Okay, so the the more important criticism, and if I were actually going to write a criticism, if I were going to put my own book down, and this is something that I wanted to do something about when we were writing it, so it's been a weight on my heart, if you will, for this whole time, it would not tell the story only of postmodernism. So what Cynical Theories does, Cynical Theories tells the story, we begin with postmodernism, we define uh, functionally postmodern ideas and themes that I think are at least recognizable. We could go into the details, but you should read the book and try to save time. We showed how those ideas were taken up by activists and mutated in the 1980s and 90s into a new thing we called applied postmodernism. That's chapters one and two. We outlined what the applied postmodern theories are through chapter seven. And in chapter eight, we discuss how that has then kind of condensed into almost a religious faith that we refer to as the truth according to social justice in woke activism since maybe 2010. So that's the main story. That's chapters one through eight of Cynical Theories. Chapters nine show practical ways that it was leaking into the world when we wrote it, which means by, <laughs> it's kind of funny to even bring it up given how much has changed, but by the end of August 2019, uh, before any of the crazy stuff of 2020 broke out, and then um, chapter 10 talks about why liberalism presents, classical liberalism, if you will, the fundamental liberal principles presents a workable reply and answer. As a matter of fact, this is where if you've heard me talk about, uh, I did it on the only subs podcast that I run uh, for subscribers. You talk If you've heard me talk about anywhere else though or there that the wokeness is snake oil, social snake oil, that it ginned up a problem that didn't exist to sell the medicine but the medicine is designed to make you sicker, so it gets to keep doing what it's doing. That's what social snake oil means in this case. Um, liberalism was already working just fine. It was doing great. It wasn't perfect, but of course it can't be perfect. It's not meant to be perfect. Before we got hooked on to a snake oil salesman by these activists, starting with applied postmodernists, uh, really in, in the main part in the 1980s and 90s, and taking down the woke road. So in some sense, Cynical Theories tells the story, and it claims that what we are seeing is postmodernism evolving through time, uh, including through mutation. This isn't the whole story, and because the book was limited in length and we wanted to include actual details about the specific theories themselves and unearth critical race theory, for example, which was very important and we're very glad we did it, intersectionality, queer theory, very important if you want to understand what's going on in trans activism. Um, Postcolonial theory, very important if you are somebody who doesn't live in the United States and cares about these issues. Britain, uh, Australia, uh, Canada are getting hit, uh, while all of them have a little bit of critical race theory going on. Um, Canada, maybe more than any of the others, they're getting hit particularly hard with postcolonial theory, especially Australia and Canada. Australia is almost all postcolonial theory. South Africa is very heavily postcolonial theory. That's the vector. So we wanted to cover that. It also kind of shows the story of how these activist ideas started to develop out of that kind of postmodern milieu. But what we don't, and then we tell about how that matured into kind of a faith-like thing. So what we don't tell we have this kind of gaping hole in the part of the book where we describe applied postmodernism. We say just kind of very generally that these postmodern ideas got condensed and simplified 
and put into use by activists. They were made applicable by activists who wanted to use them. What we don't really do, although we touch on it a little bit in the chapter, uh, is it six, about feminism and gender studies. We touch on that story a little bit there. What we don't really do is we don't tell the story of who those activists were and what happened. And I've wrestled with this cognitively ever since, uh, ever since we were early on in the writing. Because the answer is that they're critical theorists, and the, the title of the book reflects that, obviously. Uh, and it's a lot of extra work, a lot of extra pages, a lot of extra writing, a lot of extra baggage, a lot of extra complexity to introduce an entire separate line of thought. And it's not even only critical theorists, because it's also the Gramscians who aren't technically critical theorists. And it's also the feminists who are also technically not necessarily critical theorists, although they used a different kind of critical theory, a type of critique that was rooted mostly in literary criticism and feminist critique. And they all kind of mixed together and didn't mix together. There's a lot of complication to that whole story. I haven't even drawn out the whole map of this ever quite yet, but I have a good enough working picture. So these activists that packaged up, we said, postmodern ideas and mutated postmodernism to create what we called applied postmodernism. Jordan Peterson called it correctly uh, postmodern neo-Marxism. They were primarily neo-Marxists and feminists. And for myself, I said, I wrestle with this cognitively. The question that I've been asking myself, even while we were writing the book and ever since, which one is the correct characterization? And I decided for a long time that the answer is both. It's kind of like a superposition, like a quantum mechanics superposition of two ideas. Is this postmodernism that ended up becoming critical? Or is this critical theory that picked up postmodern tools? And Helen and I actually disagree on this. Or I'm not sure if we do now. I think we still do. But at the time, we certainly disagreed with it. And Helen was very strongly on in the camp that it is postmodernism that picked up critical theory. And so that's the angle we told the book from, especially because she's lead author. It's technically, I mean, I referred to it when we were writing it as her book. Um, I didn't try to claim too much. And so, and that was the original idea for the book was to tell the story of postmodernism and that postmodernism had not died, but rather had changed forms. There's a very persuasive argument to be made on the other side that this is actually critical theory that picked up postmodern epistemology. That's a, that is a correct interpretation of this also. And that's why I say I think it's a superposition of the two. The critical theory engine is, to my thought now, a bit more significant. But that's even more complicated because, like I said, there's a Gramscian line and there's also a feminist line. So, and there's, there's also this social justice line, which is its own kind of separate line. So let me kind of tell these pieces in brief. I'm not going to go into all the details of what is postmodernism, what is critical theory, what are what is Gramsci. I'm going to just kind of touch on these things, but they are distinct lines, and I kind of want to show how those lines spread out through time and they mix together. What is feminism? Feminism is the hardest one because feminism has a very long history. It's very complicated. Um, I made the joke recently that there are approximately 3.4 million. I don't remember what the real number is, but there are an absurd number of branches of feminism and they all hate each other, uh, which is true. And in a sense, the intersectionality was brought in to bring them to heel under a doctrine of solidarity. Um, where now all of the different branches of feminism either are going to pay fealty to what's known as black feminism, which is one particular school of thought in feminism, 
in particular queer black feminism, or else they're somehow guilty of racism or some other ism probably. And so solidarity with that is necessary. Solidarity across all axes of oppression is necessary. That's kind of the point of intersectionality is to bring these disparate branches of feminism, but also other branches of say black liberationism, et cetera, queer activism, all kind of under one umbrella. So these are very complicated stories. And, um, let me kind of just briefly outline where they are. The, the feminist line is the, in some sense, the oldest one, unless we actually want to go back to Marx. I won't go back to Hegel for this discussion, uh, although the Hegelian dialectic is the underlying logic of all of it, and the Hegelian metaphysics as not necessarily just, I mean, Hegel believed in his metaphysics, but they're, the most important thing to know about Hegel, and I'll talk about this more when I talk about Hegel specifically, is that even immediately after Hegel's death, or maybe before Hegel's death, there were about a bajillion interpretations of Hegel. It was not clear what Hegel meant. And if you try to read Hegel, some people call this subtlety. Um, it's quite obvious why there are so many interpretations. But very quickly after his death, and Hegel was a rock star in his day, two huge schools of thought called Old Hegelianism and Young Hegelianism arose. Old Hegelianism believed that where Hegel was talking about this idea of a perfected state using the dialectic blah 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 that he laid out in his metaphysic, they believed that the Prussian state of the 1830s and 1840s already embodied that perfected society. It was the perfect society. The young Hegelians were the progressives, so you can see that the old Hegelians were the kind of conservative, super conservatives, and the young Hegelians were very progressive, and they were like, that's bull. There's all kinds of problems in society. And so they turned the dialectic to a process of progressivism. And that is the relevant branch. Again, so just same theme. Who cares what the old Hegelians thought and who cares what all of Hegel's thought was? None of that's terribly relevant because the young Hegelians became the relevant school of thought. And I don't know much about the philosopher Feuerbach, but he was a leading one. And I bring him up because he was mentor to Marx, who was also a young Hegelian. And Marx uh, said that he turned Hegel on his head by creating dialectical materialism, which means he took Hegel's thing out of the realm of ideas. Hegel was an idealist philosopher and put them into the realm of the world, the material world, in particular, dirty, dirty economics. And so Marx laid out this idea that used Hegel's idea of dialectic, uh, dialectical processes and Hegel's idea of a historical, um, teleology is the right word, but purpose. There's like a destiny of history. Historicism is what it's called. Uh, he took, he took those ideas from Hegel and applied them to economics, created dialectical materialism, which is when you combine it with his idea of conflict theory, uh, which was the mechanism of Marx's dialectic, uh, then what you end up is what we call Marxism. And so very early Marx turned out to be very young Hegelian. And then he kind of grew up and he became more and more and more like Das Kapital came way later. And then his ideas didn't really work out. And I know it's shading over a lot, but it's very important because I want to point out just briefly for a second, the critical theorists looked at this and they were like, oh, what happened was Marx lost his way. We're going to go back to that early young Hegelian model. So there's a, there is a line from Hegel, but we'll, we'll come back to the critical theorists. So Marxism is its own long line. It's kind of like background knowledge, background noise, background radiation or something that all of this kind of exists in because then you have feminism arising. Feminism was, of course, kind of arising contemporaneously with Marx. It was happening as it was connected actually to the uh, abolition movement in some degree before uh, 
you know, so in the 1850s and 1860s, 1840s even, there was something like feminism happening there. There was some recognition that women were getting the, the short end of the stick. But it really, you know, first wave feminism is really characterized as being characters like Susan B. Anthony. So we're talking like the end of the 1800s going into the early 1900s, the 19th and 20th century, leading up to first wave feminism is considered to have achieved its mission with the suffragettes uh, and more importantly, the other uh, female activists, feminist activists who were not suffragettes because the suffragettes were sort of like a paramilitary, almost like BLM of the day. They were pretty radical and dangerous. They weren't exactly the activists that that probably moved the ball the most, uh, achieving women's suffrage, the right to vote for women. And that, uh, that would have been, what is it? Was that 1918 or 1920? One or the other. And so roundabout there in any case. Um, American history was a class that I took in something like 1999. It's been a little while since I have all the exact dates and details. So first wave feminism, then second wave feminism still retained, well, actually I should say there was a lot in first wave feminism that people don't realize a lot of that, some of it wasn't, and a lot of it wasn't probably a lot of the most effective stuff wasn't, but there was already a lot of Marxism in feminism there. So the feminist Marxism, physical Marxist feminism already existed within the first wave. So going forward, Marxist feminists, what happens when you have these kind of movements, right? And then they achieve success. There's a lot of the people who are participating in the movement drop out, but the hardest core people don't drop out. So you have this really weird circumstance after the success of a huge social movement is that the hardcores who really derive their identity or are really committed to some, you know, article of faith around it continue. And the Marxist feminists continued, and the Marxist feminists uh, increasingly kind of had this conflict theory-laden line of thinking. But feminism existed, but largely kind of fell out of massive activism until you start getting into the 1940s and 1950s, where with with books like you know Simone de Beauvoir's uh, *The Second Sex*, uh, and then you know the feminine mystique is that Betty Friedan or something like that, and so. Feminism kind of started, it's ramping up into its second wave. And at this point, you actually have people who are are significantly Marxist and it's attracting, again, liberal attention to try to get women's legal equality. Well, we haven't talked about the critical theorists yet, but the critical theorists are dipping in here, I should point out also, because the women's liberation movement had a lot of crossover with the other liberation movements that were now happening in the second phase of the critical theory school. So there's lots of crossover happening there, lots of ideas uh, happening. But what's really going on when you start looking at stuff like Beauvoir and the second sex and you start looking at, uh, um, you know, the feminine mystique is you start to have this literature. And I, I really stress the word literature because what was happening is a lot of the early feminist stuff that was, was going on that was happening in literary circles and eventually literary criticism and eventually English departments. And the English departments, especially going through the 60s, became more and more uh, progressive and started to create things like women's studies departments out of that. And then women's studies eventually became gender studies, eventually kind of mostly fell into queer theory, although gender studies kind of persists and it shares a lot, but it draws off of queer theory very heavily, which was born out of it. So you have this very long line of thought here. These are activists that are feminists who are largely literary critics. And so literary criticism mixed with Marxian critique 
has its own line of pedigree. And of course, that's already attached to these ideas of social justice, which has its own thing. Social justice kind of comes in out of the religious movements. It started actually with a Jesuit, um, maybe in the, I forget, late 1700s. Uh, but it had its first really big boom in the U.S. in the early uh, early part of the 20th century with a Baptist preacher named Walter Rauschenbusch, who, talking about connections, turned out to be the grandfather of the American pragmatist postmodernist Richard Rorty. Um, and Rauschenbusch studied with the Fabian Socialists, who are as kind of a whole other branch uh, that we don't have to talk too much about right now, but should at some point. And so social justice he came back with this idea of the social gospel after he worked with the Fabian Socialists and started trying to remake Hell's Kitchen, New York City, and then really Baptist faith went really leftist for a while following the social gospel. Um, and so social, social justice has this line, and that's cross-pollinating in uh, with the ideas of feminism, and then all of this is kind of like one very long line of critique, but it's very heavily influenced through literary criticism that was influenced through Marxian critique, and then in the 1960s and 70s started to pick up neo-Marxist critique, especially the 60s started to pick up neo-Marxist critiques. Um, okay, so that's the feminism line. So the feminism line is absolutely integral to creating the woke movement, because woke was born, the, the birthplace of woke is black feminism, and black feminism is the fusion of black liberationism and radical feminism of a particularly socialist line. So we have that, that line of critique. So now we've talked about Hegel and Marx, and I mentioned the critical theorists. I mentioned Hegel and Marx specifically to get to the feminists who were very heavily Marxian, and their orientation, Marxist feminism, was a huge, huge feeder line of radical activism and the birthplace of many of the radical branches of feminism there. Uh, they equated patriarchy and capitalism. They said that capitalism and patriarchy are kind of one thing, uh, uh, eventually, you know, hetero-patriarchal capitalism. But patriarchal capitalism, what it was doing was commodifying femininity, commodifying women, turning them into a product for capitalism, whether through marketing or through sex or whatever other thing, or through domestic labor, so that men could go off to work, lots of different arguments of that sort. So this, this very Marxian analysis runs us through line, and then it dipped so heavily in literary criticism and coming through English departments, which turned out to be relevant later. Then we have the neo-Marxists. Well, maybe we should do Gramsci first. We'll do the neo-Marxists first. We'll come back to Gramsci. Okay, so right before the critical theory school started, which started in the nineteen, it started in nineteen twenty. Right as it was starting, you had kind of these communists who were not able to pull off the tricks that they wanted to pull, especially Georg Lukács or Georgi Lukács, who was uh, who, who was a leader in the Hungarian Revolution that took for a few months and failed. And then he got in cahoots with Gramsci, who we'll come back to, but also with Horkheimer, uh, Max Horkheimer, who was the first director of, or one of the first directors, maybe not the very first director, of the Frankfurt School, the Institute for Social Research set up in Frankfurt, Germany, with the goal of figuring out why Marxist revolutions weren't happening, with the goal of tying in social sciences like Freudian psychoanalysis and Weberian uh, sociology, maybe even Durkheimian, but more Weberian sociology, and trying to sort out why is it, why is it that Western civilization is resistant? And they developed critical theory out of this. And like I said, their objective turned out to be, you know, sometimes people say they, that they aim to marry Marx to Freud, which is true, especially of Marcuse. Um, 
but it's probably better to say that the, the, the guys like Horkheimer, what they were trying to do was was to solve the problem of why Marx's ideas failed, and they traced heavily backwards to his earliest writings, his his young Hegelian days, or his most young Hegelian days, and they tried to take, and you know, remember I said that, that Marx said that he turned Hegel on his head, well, they tried to turn Hegel back upright, and so what that entailed was trying to put more of the dialectic process in and to shift out of the economic realm so much and more into cultural and idea realms. So we had people like Theodore Adorno who are talking constantly about music and aesthetics. Max Horkheimer is kind of constantly talking about the vestiges of culture. And they had this general belief, which I think largely came from Gramsci, who was imprisoned by that point and not in communication with them. And they had this general belief that uh, these kind of vestiges of culture hold hold Western civilization together and they prevent people from wanting to abandon the capitalist thing. So this develops into a second phase after World War II where Herbert Marcuse is now kind of in charge. And he, we've talked about in, in great detail, I have more podcasts about him coming. We're going to do his essay on liberation soon. So he starts tying this all together with, you know, repressive tolerance as one-dimensional man rampantly targeting consumerist culture and saying that that upholds capitalism and all kinds of suffering, he was very interested in connecting lots of different entity or activities like uh, like the so civil rights movement was booming in the 1960s, so 50s and 60s, and that's when um, Marcuse was doing the bulk of his most influential writing. So he's working in civil rights stuff, but he's kind of inventing black liberationism, you know, as he goes. He's creating a neo-Marxist version, a very radical black liberation activism, uh, and very intentionally was wedding that to the so-called leftist intelligentsia and to the radical outsiders and activists like the people who have gone on to become Antifa in the, in the contemporary days, although Antifa is older than all of this too. Um, so the critical theory school ends up Marcuse ends up having as a student Angela Davis. Angela Davis uh, is now very famous and went on to be very significant in forming the, the roots of that very radical Marxian socialist black feminism, queer black feminism also. And that is the incubating pot out of which the fully matured critical race theory came. Um, so there's deep ties there, and this is kind of part of why their activism is very different. It's not just, as we said in cynical theories, that it arose in law, though that is one thing. Another thing that makes critical, critical race theory different, say, from queer theory, is that it arose very heavily out of this line, this neo-Marxist line, which um, has to be really... Uh, Analyze. You can't ignore. You can't ignore the influence of critical theory and neo-Marxism on the development of critical race theory and intersectionality, which eventually tied these things all together. Speaking though of so the comparison to queer theory, like I said, that grew out of feminism going into women's studies, going into gender studies, going into queer theory as an offshoot of this, and queer theory came as an offshoot of this by fusing in the postmodern constructivist thoughts. This is where all of a sudden Foucault and Derrida, through people like Judith Butler, become extremely irrelevant. And so the postmodern school gets tied in. The activists, though, who were tying it in were already not critical theorists in the in the sense of the, the neo-Marxist school, but feminists. 
critical feminists. They were gender-critical feminists, as a matter of fact, as that would have been understood in, say, the 1970s, many of whom were working in English departments, and then in English departments, I think first at Yale, the, the Yale English department is the first place where all the postmodern thinkers came. And these women were able to say, aha, we have a remedy for that pesky science which is in our way, because this Foucault has pointed out that science is just one way of knowing. And so you can see that these activists were, they have their own long pedigree. They didn't, they're not just activists who are doing activism. Long pedigree of thought. So that's the feminist line. We have the neo-Marxist line, which fed heavily into um, critical race theory. And these things, of course, fused. Queer theory and critical race theory fused in intersectionality. So by 1990, we see the fusion of these things happening. Meanwhile, we have the Gramscian line. The Gramscian line is a little bit different. So Gramsci is Mr. Cultural Marxism. His He was really the kind of mastermind genius of all of this. And again, the threads are all going to tie together. So what happened with Gramsci? Gramsci ends up in 1926 going to prison, and he ends up writing this book there, or a series of books called The Prison Notebooks. Now, uh, it's over 3,000 pages. It's just an, an incredible volume of work. They ironically sent the Italian fascists, sent Gramsci to prison, um, literally with a statement to, to stop his brain working for 20 years. It turns out he died in prison after 11, so they got nine. <laughs> but in those 11 that he wasn't dead, um, he wrote over 3,000 pages of some of the most uh, damaging, uh, but also trenchant, if you want to be fair to it in that regard, uh, Marxist theory that's ever been written. And so that backfired. And so anyway, he liaised with the founders of the critical theory school back in, say, 23, 20, you know, times around then, so a century ago. But then he goes to jail in 1926, and he writes his notebooks. He dies in 1937. His notebooks turn out to be smuggled out to Moscow immediately after his death to the uh, Third International, the International Communist Party, the common turn, as it sometimes was called, uh, so Gramsci is no more. I don't know, actually, given any connection or communication they may or may not have had with Moscow, but I think it's unlikely that the critical theorists had much knowledge of Gramsci, uh, of his prison notebooks, I should say. So his thoughts before he went to prison certainly would have been an influence on the critical theorists. After he went to prison, you know, Max Horkheimer published Traditional and Critical Theory in 1937, in the same year that Gramsci died, and his stuff was smuggled out. Um there's a clear turn by the time that that Marcuse is picking it up, uh, picking up the mantle of the critical theory school. But there's no good reason at that point yet to believe that Gramsci's thought influenced these guys all that much beyond that early beginning before he went to prison. However, it's not true that Gramsci's ideas lay idle in Moscow, like in some kind of a tome or you know or a box or something. You know, where they didn't just lock his book up. They were communists, the Communist Party. You know, there's a there's an analysis that says it wouldn't. It's barely an overstatement to say that Mao did what Gramsci thought. I don't know if Mao would have read Gramsci. He was certainly educated. He was certainly in connection with the Communist Party, and the Communist Party certainly would have had uh, Gramsci's writings by 1937. And then Mao put his plan into action. I don't know for sure whether or not Mao read them. I haven't figured that part out yet. I haven't had a chance to read into that. But we have the Gramsci line certainly leaked through the Marxists to at least Brazil at some point because Paulo Freire was a Gramscian. Paulo Freire was the education activist who remade 
uh, Brazilian education in line with Marxist thought to turn education into a Marxist indoctrination center. Well, that idea was Gramsci's. Gramsci had a handful of big ideas. One was that you have to infiltrate, he said that society has a hegemonic, as it's called, um, culture, and that that resists change and people are happy and content with it. And that if you want to affect a Marxist revolution, you have to undermine that hegemony. And the way that you do it is you undermine the key cultural institutions by infiltrating them and establishing a counter hegemony, an opposite idea that will either break them or turn them Marxist from within. And he identified five key areas of thought that were relevant. They are, um, what are they? Uh, family, education, media, law. I've left one out. Um, but he had five. I always can rattle them off except when I'm doing a podcast. And, um, all of those things have been infiltrated, but the one I wanted to focus on, you know, oh, religion. So religion, family, media, education, and law. That's what the five are. Uh, all of those things have actually been infiltrated and counter hegemonies have been established within them. And they're trying to turn the things around from within to abolish the family. That's Gramsci, by the way, that's a Gramscian idea. Uh, the nuclear family needs to be abolished from, from BLM. Well, what's going on with education is that Gramsci focused very particularly on the, on the role of education, whereas the critical theorists understood the role of media and got all in kind of cahoots with the propagandists. Gramsci really understood the necessity of education, and he had this whole thing about developing a new education system in which you would end up developing so-called working-class intellectuals who would lead the proletariat to form a, uh, you know, effective revolutionary body that would then overthrow things. Well, Paulo Freire in Brazil took these ideas up and decided to remake education when he wrote the Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And Pedagogy of the Oppressed is where we all of a sudden have all our education activists, because that got to North America, at least by the mid-1970s, and leftist education reformers ended up, especially Henry Giroux originally read Freire, had a mind-melting experience and decided to turn our education system into a class consciousness raising or critical consciousness raising um, project. And then Giroux is the one who ended up bringing in the so-called European theorists by whom he mostly meant the critical theorists to change it from class consciousness from Freire into critical consciousness as it would now involve all of the different axes of oppression and race and sex and sexuality and all of the rest. And so the Gramscian line is super, super important in terms of how it influenced uh, our education and our institutions, but it also ended up influencing Marcusa, who at some point got a hold of Gramsci before it was translated into English in the 1960s and decided to institute what Gramsci's idea of getting inside of institutions and creating counter hegemonies within them, the leftist intelligentsia, the racial minorities, and, and the, the outsiders, were to create a coalition and taking over the university. So education from within was also part of Marx, Marcuse's idea, and Marcuse got this idea largely from following um, Gramsci. So the Gramscian line fuses back in at that point, and the Gramscian line when it fuses back in, that's when Rudi Deutschke called it um, the long march through the institutions, which was being modeled off after Mao, uh, what Mao actually did, and then infused with Gramsci. Gramsci ends up translated into English in 1970, and that's where that line of critical education theorists starts building up and eventually finds Freire, finds their key path, and the education schools end up taking off. 
That gets wedded to critical race theory and intersectionality in 1994 by Bell Hooks with her book Teaching to Transgress. So we can tell that whole story about how all these lines by 1994 and 5 have now fused under a doctrine of intersectionality into one hot mess. And that hot mess becomes the woke movement we've discussed in other podcasts like Kimberly, the one about Kimberly Crenshaw or the two about Kimberly Crenshaw, where we discussed the birthplace of wokeness being in the Mapping the Margins uh, paper. Well, uh, by that was 1991, by certainly 10 years later, but probably as little as five years later, all of these messy lines have kind of fused together into one hot mess that we call wokeness. Um, and that's kind of the whole story. I couldn't tell that whole story, or Helen and I couldn't tell that whole story. And we, I, I've done it short shrift here even, because I tried to keep this under an hour, which we're getting real close to. Uh, we didn't tell this whole story in cynical theories. So if you wanted to levy a substantive criticism of, of cynical theories, you would say, oh, they only focus on the postmodern aspect, which is arguably not even the most important aspect when there's these others. But the branches are complicated. There's a feminist line that all kind of, much of it all goes back to Hegel. Most of it goes back to Marx or much of it goes back to Marx. But there's a feminist line that's got its own flavor that ties in the social justice line. That the, the blossoms into queer theory and etc. You have the postmodern in line that we talk about that primarily generated in, in addition to postcolonialism, which I didn't bring up separately. Postcolonialism was its own line, beginning very heavily with Franz Fanon. And just to kind of throw the detail out, this uh, French Algerian psychoanalyst who believed that that the colonized have a right and an obligation to preserve their their well-being and mental health by having violent revolt against their colonizers, you know, actual violent overthrow of colonizers. So this feeds into people like Edward Said, who was a Fanonian and a Foucauldian. So Foucault and Fanon come together to form Said. We've got the, so we've got this post-colonial line. I guess I have to add that in. We had the feminist line. that was all kind of rooted in Marx. Um, and then feminist literary critique we have, you know, pouring over texts to find the secrets of how domination occur in words, which is a very kind of feminist project. You, know, you can see how all of a sudden Foucault and especially Derrida become interesting to them. They become incorporated to queer theory. So we have a queer theory. We have a postcolonial theory. Um, we do tell the story of postcolonial theory kind of properly. Not all of feminism, but a little bit. Critical race theory has this much more deep line through critical theory itself through the Frankfurt School, through the neo-Marxists. It's much more neo-Marxist in orientation, much more caught up in the liberationist movement, but there are ties there. Women's liberation, sexual liberation are actually still liberation movements. That's all happening in the 1960s, this kind of nexus of sloppy, angry new left thought that's all kind of coming out of these radicals. Um, and you have the Gramscian line that actually very oddly influences the uh, critical theory line from the beginning, but then swoops back in after hitting education and uh, creating this impetus with Marcuse to start infiltrating the long march. And Mao might actually have been relevant to feeding the Gramscian line because Mao may have had Gramsci and then Gramsci or the Mao did what Mao did, and then people like Marcusa saw what Mao was doing and saw that it succeeded and tried to copy it. Uh, so these lines all start feeding together. I didn't talk about disability and fat studies. They're kind of their own thing, but disability studies could be a whole other line. Social model of disability starting in 1980, Michael Oliver and so on. They have all fused into this hot mess called wokeness by the mid-1990s. Um, and that line is the line that has continued forward as a unified object of radical thought 
Um, and the biggest criticism of cynical theories is that it doesn't actually engage all of that. The part that we didn't take the entire uh, entirety of thought of everything that Foucault or Derrida thought or Lyotard or whoever, worthless. Worthless criticism misses the point completely. Uh, defanged, worthless. Same thing if we did if we had incorporated people like Marcuse or Horkheimer or Marx or Hegel or Simone de Beauvoir. To a greater degree, we do mention her uh, or any of these other lines. Any of these other lines or Gramsci. Of course, we didn't take in the totality of their thought. The point is to see how the activists today are using it to destroy the world that we live in. And where did those ideas come from? How can they be traced back? So that's the rationale behind cynical theories. That's your best criticism of cynical theories. All the other ones where they say, oh, well, they don't understand the philosophers they criticized are coming from a place of not understanding what we did and why we did it. And the reason just to close on that is because the way that those people are trying to advocate saying that we took the wrong path failed. It failed absolutely it failed abjectly and it has put us in this position so the cheek of them to think oh yeah let's just let some more philosophers and philosophy professors solve this problem for us after they for 50 plus years have just dropped the ball every time is preposterous i will own up to being an amateur relatively speaking in these fields but the experts have failed us the experts can't do it. The experts can't see the forest for the trees. The experts are going to get us killed. At least the experts on these so-called critical methods and postmodernism. They have worthless critiques. I wish they would apply their knowledge. This is my call out to them. I wish they would apply their knowledge more profitably by looking at what's actually happening in the world today and admitting where it came from. If they want to try to bring the rest of Foucault's thought to bear, I think it's a lost project. I welcome them to prove me wrong. If they want to bring the rest of Hegel's thought to bear, I welcome them to prove me wrong. I think it's a failing strategy. I've laid out why I think it's a failing strategy, but this, my friends, is the proper critique of the shortcomings of my own book, Cynical Theories, that I wrote with Helen Pluckrose and published last year in 2020. And I appreciate you listening. We'll catch you next time.